everybody. Uh, this is your host, Aram Mokumov, and you're listening to another episode of the Product Innovation Series, uh, where every week I have guests uh, share their stories and wisdom on how to ship a great product. Today, I'm joined with the VP of Product Management at Link Software, Pavan Singh. Uh, he's a recognized thought leader in the Internet of Things, held leadership roles uh, in the IoT Solutions Group at Cisco, and he got his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Cool. Well, let me ju jump into the first question. Um, maybe we could start off by you telling us a little bit about what you do in the enterprise infrastructure uh, side of things, because we haven't actually spoken to anybody in that uh, sector. Um, so maybe we could start off about, for our listeners, tell us about what that really is about. Thank you. It's uh, so I've been I've had roles in uh, at Cisco and at Wind River now at Lynx, and all of them have been focused on as you said around uh, enterprise infrastructure, the two big words. Uh, but but really what it means is that a lot of the things that that um, all every single business is becoming a software business uh, when it comes to uh, running your systems on the factory floor to then running your CRM to your marketing operations, everything is done in, uh, in, in, uh, in software nowadays. And, and so what that means is that um, this, this software infrastructure um, is, is really critical to, to how these companies operate and, and how the profitability is managed, how the, how the operation continuity can happen. So to me, all of the things that sit in there is, uh, are called enterprise infrastructure. And uh, it in includes everything from edge where I've been focused on uh, things like the um, factory floor or a retail store um, or an automotive um, or a plane, things that sit right at the, at the end, of, uh, end of everything to kind of things in the cloud, which run with um, like things like that, that run on Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure or AWS. Um, where there are massive systems running, um, including making sure that A, they're operational, B, they're secure. Um, and then the, the last part is really on top, the applications, which a lot of the users see, which is a lot about making sure that this enterprise infrastructure operates, but it, but it is also easy to use. And so I think all of these things together from enterprise infrastructure, I've been focused on what used to be called the Internet of Things, and now it's called the Edge, and it's really about uh, how do you uh, how do you how do we um, expect and leverage um, intelligence at the edge, and it started with uh, us collecting data, and uh, from from things like windmills to um, uh, to sensors. But now we are moving to autonomous systems where it's about the data, then being smart about the reaction and then and, and then really processing a lot of data and, and knowing what to do. So interesting. Would you say like for an airplane, for example, like a lot of the a lot of the a lot of what you do on the edge is, you know, potentially mission critical? It is. And I, I came up with the term mission critical edge uh, okay. when I uh, joined uh, links about two years back, about two and a half years back. And the idea was that, uh, that uh, at the edge, 
um, we really want to make sure that uh, the systems are are working. But then when it comes to a, a plane or a or automotive um, or or a, or a truck, you really want to you, we we all want to make sure that the software works and always works and keeps on working for 10 to 15 years. And, and that's what we call the mission critical edge where um, the, the, the paradigms that come from the IT domain are still applicable, but they also have to, can, you have to be very reliable, secure and available. It's really interesting. I mean, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people in product and nobody has ever told me that they tried to build systems or, or infrastructure at any level, which is supposed to work for 15 years. So can you tell me about like what kind of planning or work goes into creating an infrastructure which is supposed to last for that long? And there are two sides to it. Uh, and what's happening is if you look, look at for about 10 years back, this industry had, a, had, a, had an interesting paradigm, which, which, which was let's build the systems um, with today's best technology and then let's not touch them for 15 years. So the idea was, hey, if I if the thing is operating and and if I don't touch it, then it should keep on operating. Mm -hmm. The challenge that uh, that has come up now is when you when you think about things like machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms that also have to run at the same mission critical edge these technologies are evolving we can't we can't expect that i deploy something today and tomorrow um uh, tomorrow there won't be something better that's one second part is the security requirements are changing um the the, the bad actors are getting smarter and smarter so we have to get uh, even smarter in defending against them so there is by definition these systems now have to be uh, touched and updated uh, far more frequently than 15 years. So now, 10 years back, the paradigm was, I won't touch it, I won't change it, I won't patch it, it'll be fine. Now the paradigm is, well, it's got to run 15 years, mm -hmm. but I still have to be able to update with maybe new machine learning algorithms. I want to still be update with new security patches. I want to be able to update with new security monitoring um, uh, techniques. And, but some parts of it, which directly affects a machine or a moving thing, uh, that still have to run for 15 years without, without being affected. Very interesting. Uh, and just out of curiosity, um, how, how does a, I'm not a specific, maybe a VP of product, but like somebody senior, how does your role in being an enterprise infrastructure really compare and what are the similarities maybe to like uh, a SaaS, uh, you know, a product manager? What are like the main differences, would you say? I think there's, there's less start of similarities. The similarities are that I think um, till, till, till a few generations of product back, it was okay that an enterprise infrastructure product user experience wasn't the best. Now it's no longer acceptable. Now the user experience of an enterprise infrastructure product really matters. And by, by user experience, I, I mean, not just the UX where you, where you are, or the user interface, but also APIs, the quality of APIs, how easily can you integrate it with something else? Does it comply with standards that, that, that makes it easy for other products to be integrated 
um, with this, uh, with, with, with whatever, whatever um, somebody like me builds. So, so I think the similarity when it comes to um, integration of user experience and developer experience, that is, that is the same. There's literally no difference. Um, the difference comes in when, when compared to um, SaaS, a SaaS product manager that um, has a lot of room to do whatever they want to do on the, on the application front and the infrastructure side is being handled by their DevSecOps people. Mm-hmm. Um, in case of us, especially, well, I focus a lot on the edge infrastructure where I can't assume a full cloud infrastructure full kind of scale up cloud infrastructure. So, so for me, it, it, the, the, constri- the, the resources are, are constrained quite a bit uh, at the edge. So then I am looking at what can I do to meet the requirements um, and, and have this have a similar or the be- or, or a, possibly the best user experience with limited resources. Okay. 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 Um... Now, going back to what you answered before about um, working in those 10 to 15 year kind of like uh, mindset kind of wise, what, what, what lessons or principles can you share or pass down to like a SaaS product manager, you know, uh, based on the work that you do where the code that you deploy should last that long? Yeah, so, so I would say I want to... Uh, Clarify a bit. I think what with where people, where product leaders like me go in with this mindset, it's about the product should last that long. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is some part of the code that's not touched for that long, but there is other parts of the code that is touched. So being able to update things be a seamlessly and in a secure manner becomes really important. So it's more about the product should continue to operate. The code itself might have to be updated and modified either to leverage the latest technologies or to make sure it's, it, it's, uh, if there's a new um, vulnerability that's been discovered that is addressed and patched. Okay. So the, the mindset that I, I would say is, is that uh, expect that there will be um, new capabilities that you have to deliver in your product. They expect that there will be uh, new uh, vulnerabilities that will be discovered, that whether it's in the open source component or, or in the proprietary component, that will have to be patched. And so that mindset that uh, a product is a continuously evolving uh, software, and, but, but it has to meet uh, both the performance and the security and in some cases, certification requirements. That's the that's the mindset I I I always have in mind. I think and that it benefits anybody, um, including a SaaS product manager. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the next question I have is, uh, I'm interested, like in the space. I've never really, as I mentioned, I don't know much about infrastructure, infrastructure and things like that. But um, when it comes to like road mapping. Uh, out your product. Um, how do you deal in those situations when like, say you get like a, a, a really large client or a big brand name that wants to work with you guys and um, they have them, they have some specific requests or custom requests that maybe just don't exist 
in your product or you didn't even plan for in your roadmap. How do you kind of assess the viability of actually, you know, um, providing that solution or do you just kind of stick to your guns and say, no, you know, uh, that's not something that we want to, that we're doing or considering. Um, this is what our product, you know, uh, does. I have three, uh, I have three part, part answer to that. Number one, for me, uh, uh, deployment is gold. What does that mean? If you're talking of, uh, talking of in, in, uh, enterprise infrastructure, it, it's not like a, an, a, an app that I show, show to your arm and say, Hey, what do you think of this? It's actually a, a, a piece of software. Somebody has to integrate with and use it and integrate with their system. So there is a, there is a, a, a non-trivial amount of effort on their side to work with my product. So number one, to me, if somebody says, I'm going to deploy this piece of uh, a code or a, or a part of a product in my use case, and I'm going to then use it for, for because it's required for my either end customer or my, um, for my users. So that's gold for me. <laughs> so, so, so in, in your, in the situation you outlined, the fact that customer says, Hey, I want this, I'm going to deploy it. It's going to be really important. If they say I want it, but the deployment is not really clear, that will concern me. That's the first one. The second part is that, um, the, any product leader knows that you can never, um, be stagnant in your word mapping. It's a very, uh, always moving fluid set. And the way I think about this is that, um, let's say we are publishing roadmaps every, every quarter, the roadmap every quarter is a snapshot of that day. It doesn't mean it's going to be, um, the same three months from now. Now, now the, the reason that in, in, in my world, it takes time to uh, put out a feature. It's, it's not a small, we're making big moves. We are, we are, we are, we are developing significant features. So it, it, it changing the roadmap too often is not good either. So, so the, so, so the, uh, so the, the, the challenge really is that how much flexibility do we have, um, without kind of seeming like we are, we are, we are running after a moving target. Okay. So it's always a balance. Hey, hey, I'm, I'm very close to delivering this big feature. I want to finish it. I think that's the second part. Um, and the third part in this is that it's, it's a lot about is the, is the single customer's request, is that a leading indicator of something, a bigger demand from the market? Or is that something as a product person, did I miss what the market wanted? And making that decision, decision on, Hey, what does this mean for, for the strategic research that we have done? Do we, do we have to modify that now? Or, or, or does it mean that no, this is really um, single customer and it will never be used by anybody else. I think mm -hmm. those are three things that, you know, you have to keep in mind when, um, when, and that situation you described happens all the time because there are very large customers who really want to use it. Okay. And, uh, just from your experience, um, what are some of the bad recommendations you hear in product from others or, you know, from your own team internally, maybe? Um, what I've seen is, uh, the two parts that I've seen that have not helped. One is that, uh, taking your situation where a single customer asks for something 
and and in our world you're you're implementing standards implementing you're you're, you're taking hardware capabilities and actually uh, leveraging them so the, the the challenge that happens is if you support a certain hardware capability um let's say from the intel or the or the or the arm ecosystem then we usually want to be smart about how much do we support it because usually what happens some of these things take a long time to be fully supported on a piece of software like us so we really have to not we have to do more than what just the one customer is asking but we also can do everything because that would be too that'll be too much of an effort so the so i usually hear product recommendations we say support everything or support kind of like just a little bit and the answer is not never never those extremes so i think i'll say somewhere in the middle um so that you can with one um meet a customer maybe meeting a single customer demand can open up a larger market for you that's one the second part is i've seen um teams get enamored by a customer says hey i've got the coolest idea and it happened with a uh, in back in my cisco days i won't say which customer it was but um but we work with them to help them with their digital transformation so we were we, we did this big things where it was really amazing and we did cool great stuff but in that time frame we stepped outside the product offering that cisco would provide so now you have you're able to convert them and help our key evangelist and saying hey this is possible but suddenly we've done all this work that doesn't have the product profitability behind it it's truly a one off because not only it's the requirements are very specific it's it's not something the company does and a follow up question that like what would you recommend to product managers or even like you know uh, early stage startups maybe they're uh where a co-founder has to make a decision because until you get your software product up into the point where um it has all the features the functionality and things like that you would need or your customers would need there's always that you know quick easy path maybe where people like this client of yours at Cisco is like hey we want this kind of product or this feature and we'll pay you like it's like a kind of like a a white glove type of treatment approach where you have very clear revenue that you could make from it because it's custom right yes. um uh and so how do you not get kind of like too distracted in terms of like investing in it because you're like okay I'm getting money so I could cover my costs and my bills and everything as a startup uh but then at the same time not get too distracted uh of not building up your product for kind of profitability and scale right yeah i would um, what i use is the term capacity building that how do you um because by by building as you said in your in case of you know, you know you mentioned if you do it for one customer it does cover the cost and it's from what you said the founder is likely thinks that that feature is aligned with their roadmap if not exactly the roadmap is kind of aligned. Mm-hmm. They say okay, I'm going to do this. The, the the big question really becomes is what is the capability of that company or organization to resell um that or something similar to five other customers. Because if because to me that's capacity building that now if if you can do it for one and sell it to five or uh, to four others, then now you have some capacity left to additional features um and so 
the um, the the main thing is how do we continue to build capacity uh, from a from an engineering from an operational perspective, build features that satisfy the current customers, bring some revenue, but then also then help really build the business and and for early stage companies usually about proving the business case to uh, investors and lighthouse customers saying hey this company is real. Mm-hmm. So by by showing that hey um, I'm I'm I've done this this is a good business case uh, you'll be in good shape but then if you do one off which brings one customer which brings something and now second now the next time you're scrambling to put engineering resources on on yet another feature set that 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 is not built on a current feature set that is a problem okay um next question i want to ask is about like wake up moments in your career so you've had an expansive career worked at different places um any big wake up call moments in which led to like you maybe changing mindset around how you on your perspective yeah so one of the things that uh, that i learned so i was kind of one of the guys uh, in the Cisco's Emerging Technologies Group. And my job was to figure out the next billion dollar idea. Cool. <laughs> and really cool job and I loved it. I mean, it was fantastic. And that you could look, look at lots of things and then come up with ideas and build prototypes. And we had a combination of uh, technology and, and business uh, folks to coming together to build the first kind of prototype and doing kind of uh, a primary research with with potential customers. Um, the big learning I had was that out of that came the IoT solutions group. And so the big learning I had was that um, in, in some of the large corporations is usually one big idea that survives. So while groups like that and efforts like that are very uh, is amazing because you come up with lots of ideas, but, but, but the success uh, depends on squarely on choosing one, maybe two, but one idea that you put a lot of resources, energy behind and decide to make it happen. Um, Early on, all the ideas would seem equally kind of um, still in the incubation stage, but there is no way to get five to 10 ideas from incubation to a point where the business case is clear, unless you pick one and and choose to build a business case for. Interesting. And so, I mean, that's kind of like, sort of speak, survival of the fittest for any kind of product idea, right? Yeah. Uh, how do you, so like whenever I speak to other innovation leaders like yourself, like there's like this funnel, like you start big and then you kind of, you narrow in, you know, from your, from that experience when you were at Cisco, it's totally clear that I think you could only focus on one, but how do you kind of get to that point? Like what kind of maybe experimentation, validation did you do at an organization like Cisco in order to kind of funnel that down? Yeah, I think, and, and so there is the, there is, there is three parts to it. One is outside data, outside validation. Um, the second part is the internal alignment. And the third part happens to be timing. So the, the external validations, you're absolutely right that um, that talking, uh, coming up with the, with the hypothesis, building a prototype, you can no longer just do PowerPoint nowadays. I mean, you have to build a prototype and show to people and have them engage and, and give you feedback. 
and it might not and you don't have to it doesn't have to be it can be um, low fidelity it can be a medium fidelity it doesn't have to be a high fidelity prototype mm -hmm. um, and getting that feedback saying there is a there's an unmet market need and and yes the, that customer is willing to pay to 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 uh, to kind of to buy a solution that addresses their need. That's the that's external part. I think that has to be done irrespective of, of where the idea is. But to me, the the big aha for me was the need was the extreme um, uh, need for internal alignment. And I, I went to Kellogg, and you know we never talk about that. Yeah. We never talk about how internal alignment is as important, if not more, when it comes to innovation. It has to be aligned with the capabilities of the company. The the culture, the operational processes have to be aligned with what, um, uh, what, 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 what the new idea is. And, and uh, more than that, it, come, it becomes about people. Does the company have the right people who have done similar things and, and, and have the know-how? A lot of times what you see is um, it's, it's exciting, it's even sexy to do something totally different from what the company is doing. Um, that's okay. But I think that's okay in terms of finding a new market. But from a product engineering capability, unless there's an actual different organization, uh, that's gonna be a, a very tough road to climb on. So I think the second one is internal alignment is mm -hmm. really critical. And the third is timing. What I've seen uh, in my experience is that um, usually when there is a there's a big impending reason for a company to to invest in innovation as compared to their ongoing run rate business companies want companies want companies won't invest in oh. a, in a oh. innovation unless there's absolutely there's a reason to unless it's driven by the board down unless the unless the market is getting disrupted um so and and i've i've done that there was a there was a um, I was in a consulting capacity. I was helping turn around a multi-billion-dollar business, but that was because it was a hardware-based business that was moving to completely software-based. So we had to find a solution. There's no other option. Uh, so the, the 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 timing and the and the need for a huge pressure on the decision makers to figure something else out is needed. Otherwise, there's a lot of innovation that happens and sits on the shelves and is never used. Okay, awesome. A um, couple more questions before we jump into the fireside. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, with everything you've gone through, what what is it that people never ask you as like a, a product leader that you wish they did more? Um, what I what I wish uh, people asked me more was um, what is the uh, what is the untapped revenue pool that a product could easily address with with a with a, a small amount of uh, new new capabilities which is not being addressed today. Okay, can you can you expand that? So, like, what would that take? So typically what would happen is that as a part person, um, we also have an operational role, which is about current customers, uh, which is about, um, which is a lot about making sure their needs, uh, their needs are met. And then when there's a new feature quest coming in, as you were saying, um, can be prioritized based on others. Um, what, what, 
as a fart person, what I, especially in my space, there is usually very um, interesting adjacent ideas with that customer, but maybe in, in a parallel organization mm. that, that, that don't end up in the, uh, in the day-to-day uh, transactional nature of delivering or delivering and supporting a product. And to me, those are the best pieces because they are not a completely new capability. They are not a completely new market. They are sitting right next to your current customers and maybe that, that current customer themselves, they don't know about it because it's a, it's, a, it's a different organization. So the question about, hey, what is the next organization I should be talking to? I should put the part guy in front of that can open up a completely new pool. I have, what I have noticed is that that's usually not even a consideration. It's not um, even a consideration? It, it, uh, what I've noticed is that that's usually not a part of the thought process yeah. when engaging with that customer. Mm-hmm. They're usually talking to the a key stakeholder, the key evangelist, and they inform um, what uh, what 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 the company does. Um, but then, if if it is not in their purview, then it's outside. Then the then we don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, last question before we jump to the the quick fire ones. Um, what what do you feel product directors, VPs of product, still do often these days that don't get them a great product? I think the, the, the one thing that um, I've seen is that uh, there is not as much, and there's some, some companies that are an exception, not as much um, being in the customer setting or finding a way to be, be, to be in the customer setting and just observing. Hmm. Uh, there is there's still, and, and We've talked a lot about that. There's still a lot of asking, what do you need? As compared to sitting with them, being with them, looking at the problems, and then and then running solutions by them, as compared to asking them for solutions. That's really interesting you mentioned that. Um, I was recently just speaking to um, this company that's looking for product support, and the company is, is is requesting on-site uh, presence because it's like in the manufacturing, it's hardware stuff. And they're like, you have to be on-site to see what these people do. Like, how do they uh, touch the food? How do they process the food and all these type of things? And uh, they don't know the answers, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's why they're, they're, they're going to be coming to to you to go and ask them the right questions or, you know, think of the solutions, but you have to see it. You have to be present, right. With them. It's very true. Actually, not many people have mentioned that, but, um, how do you do that in a, in a software setting though? Like, um, you know, people engage more and more these days through, uh, very software interfaces, right. Whether it's their phone or their browser, what would you do in those situations? Um, what, I mean, in my world, a lot of the work happens, uh, through APIs and through integrations. And so a lot of time sitting on a long kind of like the call with a, with a, with a person, uh, on the customer side, who is trying to get something done or deliver a solution from there. Usually in, in this, in the enterprise infrastructure space, it's us delivering to uh, to our customer who's delivering to their customer, who, which might be internal or external. 
So usually they're in the middle and they're trying to do something and and just sitting with them on on what they're doing and just working with them as a teammate usually gives us that. There is the it's it's not stand behind their shoulder and, and watch what they're doing. That doesn't work because a lot of times it's it's coding, it's it's guiding to APIs. But but clearly but really working with them uh, on what they're trying to do. And and just being there um, and and supporting them and and, and so the support might actually uh, be a little outside what the product is being offered, but that that the insights that are um, that that come out of it are, are amazing. Okay, awesome. Let's jump into those fireside questions. So the way it works, it's a, a one line question, and we're looking for like a one or two line type of response. All right. So rapid fire format. Okay. Uh, so the first question I have uh, is, how do you ask better questions in product? Um, keep them open-ended okay. and, 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 and go from there. Um, start with open-ended and then um, end with testing a hypothesis. Okay. And what have you over the years become better uh, saying no to? Um, work. <laughs> do this. I've uh, I've become good at saying, "Oh, interesting. Thank you for the input. Can you tell me more about why is this feature valuable, and what is the driver behind this feature?" Okay. Um, I don't know how you could do this in your role, but uh, if you could only work two hours per week, what would you do? I don't think it would work for me. But uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're asking me uh, what is the two hours if that, that are most important for me, um, it's all about um, talking to customers. Okay. Uh, are there any controversial views that you hold that maybe others disagree with you on? Uh, my most con con controversial view would be that because because the the speed of innovation is changing um, in any industry and in, in, in my case embedded, the assumptions that, that have been long long held are no longer valid. So that means that uh, if you're new to the space, then you got to um, you got to really ask questions about what people are telling you. If you've been in the space for a very long time, you got to question uh, what biases do you hold before you go in. So in some ways, um, uh, it's time to use the experience to ask new questions, but not use experience to hold biases. Okay. I love that. Thank you. A um, couple more. Uh, if there was any other profession you would want to do, what would it be? Oh, uh, probably be, be, become a public speaker. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what's been one of your most worthwhile investments? uh you've you've made to date um like, as in like in yourself oh yeah uh the biggest investment that um i've made um in myself really has been um on uh on really going to in-person meets on different topics uh because in this world of covid and the way things get busy especially in a product role there are so many things happening but just going in person and, and meeting uh, and being a part of a an hour, an hour talk and just uh, talking to people uh, really makes a big difference. It is an investment, 
uh, that I've made. And the, 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 well, I'll add one more to it. Um, it's really uh, understanding what drives us at the core. So a little philosophical, but really um, um, stepping away from the rat race of kind of um, more revenue, uh, more better title for yourself to now saying, okay, what, what do you really want to make as an impact in the society? Um, and and I've, I've worked hard on that, taken different uh, courses, different trainings uh, to really go not as much in the product or technology that I work in, but, uh, but on, on understanding my own personal drivers and emotions that, that have been programmed in me. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, last question, maybe one more. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, are there any books that you uh, recommend that greatly influenced um, your work, your life to date? I think the the book uh, "Good to Great" um, is, is is a really good one. I think that 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 kind of talks about um, what differentiates from 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 having a limited impact or really um, uh, having a much lot uh, or really making the best impact possible on the society. I think that that is that is a book that's been that's been really um, valuable uh, for me. Okay. Uh, actually, maybe last question to end it off. Um, any product lessons or principles that you keep coming back to at this stage in your in your career? I think there is there are a couple. Um, I think the first um, first product lesson that uh, I learned from one of the top innovators in society was that um, a, pro a product innovation is not just about a new feature. Uh, a product innovation could be about how you deliver it. Uh, product innovation could be how how you partner on it, and so so there there's there's many many types of innovations uh, that can create an amazing customer experience, and you and and in, in my mindset typically working with engineering we kind of get focused too much on features, um, mm -hmm. I think that's that's one of them that hey it's the second part is that uh, the second thing that I always think about is. Um, making sure that there is a that the, the market is not ahead of the technology and technology not ahead of the market just getting it right if you think about uh, voice re voice recognition was in star trek a long time back and we are just now reaching it mm -hmm. um so so there is there is a there's lots of discussions discussions that can happen that are futuristic but are not realistic from a technology perspective similarly there's a lot of technology that's actually not being used effectively Deliver innovation, so kind of always looking at that um, that the right balance of technology readiness and market demand that creates uh, amazing uh, amazing products. Okay, great answer. Thank you. That's a, I think uh, also the best way to end it. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, really enjoyed having you on our show, sharing that uh, wealth of experience that you have. So thank you. And always thank you to our listeners for tuning in, supporting the show and uh, continuing to follow us. So I will wrap it up here. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me.